Let's just bow together in prayer one more time before we go to the Word. And as we do, just with the words of the Apostle Paul, I want to go to prayer. I love the fact that Paul, who was the, at first the most violent defender, uh, uh, persecutor of the Christian faith and then became its strongest advocate, its strongest defender, is willing to say in 1 Corinthians 15, in speaking about what we are here for today, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he talks about whether or not Christ was raised from the dead, and he says, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. That is, if we believe he rose from the dead and he didn't, then we're wasting our time. Have a nice day, enjoy yourselves, go home and do your own thing. But Paul doesn't stop there if you know the passage. And if you don't, this is what he says. He says, but however now, Christ has been raised from the dead. Amen? And he says, not only that, as such, these are the first fruits. He is the first fruits of those who are asleep. In other words, because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, one day all of those who know him will be raised from the dead as well. Raised from the dead to life eternal. Raised from the dead to his presence forever. There will be a new heaven. There will be a new earth. Jesus will rule over it in perfect righteousness. And I know the world tells us it's a fairy tale, but it's not. Amen? Jesus is alive. He rules and he reigns. And Lord Jesus, we are grateful this morning. We are grateful beyond words for the truth of the resurrection. We're grateful beyond words for the fact that in Jerusalem, outside there, on some hillside, whether we know which one it is or not, the bottom line is there is an empty tomb. It was empty that first Easter morning. It has been empty every morning since. He is not here. He is risen and risen indeed. Lord Jesus, thank you that this morning we don't serve one who lived and died and left us rules to live by. We serve one who lived, died, and rose, and even now is here with us and has sent his spirit to move among us. Father, there's no way that in any worship service, no matter how well we plan it, no matter how much we prepare, no matter how beautiful the music or how how eloquent the preaching, Father, there's no way we can ever even begin to express the fullness of what the resurrection of our Savior Jesus Christ means. But Lord, we're here to do our best this morning. And my prayer now is, as we open the word, as we, as we contemplate these things, as we see what your word, which is living and active and able to pierce even to the deepest places of our heart, as we open that together and invite your spirit to move, Father, I pray that in these next minutes together that you would be our teacher, that you would bring to our mind the things that are true, that you would open our eyes and our understanding to things that we've missed. And Father, that whatever happens in the next little while as we study the scriptures together, that by the time we are done, we love you more. That by the time we are done, we are grateful to you more. That by the time we are done, we are in love with you more. But Father, for that to happen, we need your Holy Spirit. Father, we know the Spirit lives within us. We know the Spirit comes when we gather together. And Father, my prayer now in these minutes is that he truly would be our teacher. That he would come and guide us in truth, the truth of your word. That he would guard us from error and misunderstanding. Father, that your Spirit would even now begin to deliver us and break us free our our grip from the baggage we carried in. Father, whether it's pride or resentment or indifference or apathy, whatever it may be, you'd sweep it all away so that in these moments we would not listen to a preacher, but in these moments together we might see Jesus. Oh, Father, today above all days may we see Jesus clearly in the preaching of your word. Today above all days may we see Jesus only in the preaching of your word. And when we leave in a short time, again, Father, may it be rejoicing because there really are scars in Jesus' hands and feet. And he really does rule and reign over us all. 
And he loved us enough to lay his life down and take it up again. We give him thanks, we give him praise, and it is in his name that we pray. The name of Jesus, God's people then said, amen, amen. You may be seated. And again, good morning, happy Easter. We are glad to have you here among us. Uh, Hopefully you are glad to be here as well as we celebrate the fact that we do, as we have said over and over again, but we should never get tired of hearing it, we serve a living, risen Savior. If you have a Bible, I want you to take it out. I hope you do, and if you don't, you can go grab one from the back. I want you to turn in your Bible this morning to John chapter 11. By the way, boys and girls, if you didn't hear, there's no children's church today. You're stuck here with us, but I think that's going to be all right. Because if you endure, and if you hang in there, and this is true for moms and dads as well, as soon as I'm done across the street, there are donuts, all right? So let that be your incentive, if nothing else, just to hang in there. And do be sure, we didn't mention that earlier, but be sure to stick around just for an hour or so or half hour, whatever you got over in the commons as second service folks will be coming in, you're making your way out. We want uh, there just to be a time of great fellowship as brothers and sisters in the Lord. So please stick around for that. Again, I want you to make your way to John chapter 11 this morning. It really has been, and just as you're turning there, let me say it's been a phenomenal week. Um, and, and not because of anything that I or the worship team or anybody else has done, but simply because as we have met together and met together and met together, the Lord has continued to be faithful to his promise to meet with us. So for many of us here this morning, this is not the beginning of Easter. This is the culmination of a week's worth of worship and prayer. And if you missed out, just know we were praying for you, and we trust that God has been working in your heart as well. And can I just tell you, um, I, I, the reason I know, one of the many, many reasons I know God has been at work, I've seen and heard lots of things throughout the week. I've seen people rejoicing. I've seen people weeping. I've listened to your prayers of honesty and transparency before the Lord. And just so you know, Friday night even, just Friday night as we had our Good Friday service, at the conclusion of our service, we had a young man give his life to Jesus Christ. So to me, it's all worth it. It's all worth it. God is working in the lives and hearts of his people. And we trust that he's going to do more of the same today as we look at this story in John chapter 11. What we've been doing the past several weeks and the past several days as well, for those of you who may be visiting today, may not have been here uh, over the last several gatherings, is we have been going through in preparation as we've been making our way to this day, to Easter Sunday, we've been going through the Gospel of John looking at a series of word pictures of illustrations Jesus gave using ordinary stuff of life to help us understand, to reveal to us who he truly is, why he came to earth, and ultimately the difference that that can and ought to, and in fact must, if we are paying attention, make in our lives. We've looked at statements where Jesus said, I am the light of the world, I am the bread of life. Friday night we looked at his declaration, I am the good shepherd. We've got one more to go this morning, and it's the one here in John chapter 11. And we're going to look at it in a moment, but in order to sort of set it up and and, and to get us sort of all on the same page with what we're going to see, let me begin by saying that I'm pretty sure it's it's safe for me to say, I'm assured and confident that you know what I mean when I say that all of us know, or most of us know, the old saying that, and you can finish it for me, a picture is worth what? A thousand words. A picture is worth a thousand words. Because sometimes what we understand, what we know, such as some of the images you see, yeah, I put that one up there too, (laughs) on the screen behind me, the reason we 
know that that saying is true and that a saying like that has endured for so long is because the fact of the matter is that sometimes a photograph, sometimes a picture, and these are pictures of all sorts of different things, all sorts of different emotions and moments in history and time, sometimes a photograph has the ability to communicate things that ordinary language can't fully express, that we would say we can't fully put into words But this morning as we come to the final word picture that Jesus gave in John's gospel, again to reveal to us who he is, why he came, and the difference that knowing him makes, I want to be so bold as to suggest that at least in this one instance, in this instance we are about to look at here, the opposite of that old adage, that old saying is true, which is that the word picture Jesus used to reveal himself in this story only begins to express the message he came to convey. Only begins to reveal the message and the truth that he was seeking to send through it. I'm not saying Jesus' message or his word picture here was inferior or inadequate. I'm just saying it's only the start. That there is so much more in this word picture than the picture itself can possibly convey. And that's because the story Jesus was telling in the word picture we are going to look at this morning... The one we've come to, is the one we've come to celebrate this morning. It is the most fantastic. It is the most majestic. It is the most miraculously incomprehensible story ever told. Because in the word picture we are looking at this morning, Jesus is telling us the story of Easter Sunday. Jesus is revealing to us the story of Resurrection Sunday. And so though the passage we are looking at this morning did not happen on that original Easter Sunday itself, it very much pointed to that event. It very much pointed to where we are headed. So that's why we're here in John 11, because this word picture more than any other tells us the story of Jesus. But before we read it, because again, it's not necessarily the Easter story itself, there are some things I want you to know or that you might find helpful to know before I read the story to you and with you, which is this. First of all, as I just said, the story we are about to read did not actually happen on Easter Sunday. You would expect coming to church on Easter Sunday, we'd look at one of those stories. We've done that before. We're not doing it today. Instead, the story we're looking at did not happen on Easter Sunday, but rather it happened sometime in the days before the events of Holy Week began. So this is before Jesus went to the cross and rose from the dead. Second thing I want you to know about the word picture we're going to look at as well is that the word picture Jesus gives here in John chapter 11 was given in the context of his final, and we will read this as we go through the story together, of his final and perhaps his greatest earthly miracle of all. That there's a word picture And there is a dramatic miracle which follows. The third thing you need to know about the story we're about to read is that the combination of those two things, and again, we'll see this as we go through the story, the combination of those two things, the word picture Jesus gives and the miracle which followed, served when they happened, once they were complete, to cement in many, many people's, if not everyone's, minds and hearts, what they were ultimately going to do with Jesus. Because as we'll see at the end of the story, we're told that Many of those who were there the day this event happened decided to follow Jesus with all their heart while others joined in the conspiracy, the desire to destroy him. This was the pivotal moment. This was the breaking point for many people. Then the fourth thing I want you to know about this story before we read it 
is that what Jesus said here, the word picture he gives us, and then what again he went and did in, again, this same chapter, this same story, and this is the reason we're looking at it today, is because it foreshadows the message, the truth of Easter Sunday. This is a picture of what Jesus was just about to do. So with that said, let's dig into the story. Grab your Bible, John chapter 11. And as you look at it, let me just note, I guess, one more thing, which is this, that this may be, as I was thinking about it this week, the longest single passage of Scripture I've ever tried to tackle in a single Sunday morning sermon. So for that reason, we're going to look at it in pieces. We're going to look at it a little bit, talk about it. Look at it a little bit more, talk about it some more. And hopefully by the time we're done, you're still with me, I'm still with you, and God will do whatever he wants to do with it. With that said, we are in John chapter 11. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. I'm going to go down for starters, actually, all the way to verse 24, whereas John, the author of this gospel, writes, this is what the word of God says. It says, now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, which was the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sister sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he, the one, Lazarus, whom you love, is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he, Lazarus, was sick, he, Jesus, then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, Jesus said to his disciples, let us now go to Judea. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews, the ruling religious authorities, were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. In other words, God's got it under control. It's going to be okay. This he said, verse 11, and after that he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. But I go so that I may awaken him out of his sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of Lazarus' death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Therefore Thomas who's called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us go also so that we may die with them. He was a fatalist, but he was loyal. (laughs) So when Jesus came, he found that he, Lazarus, had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Now we're going to stop right there before we go any further because before, and what follows in the next two verses is the word picture itself. So if you want to peek, that's fine. We'll get there shortly. But I want to stop just short of the word picture, because before we read it, I want you to just very quickly in sort of bullet point summary form, take stock with me of all that we just read and all that was going on in this passage. Because in those first 24 verses, I realize there are a number of ways we could look at them and a number of things we could draw out of them. But here's what I want you to see most clearly. 
clearly as we get into this story in God's word this morning, that all over, in, through, and all around, everything we just read in those first 24 verses, and this is the first thing I want you to take note of if you're writing these things down this morning, is this, is we are shown overwhelming evidence of broken life. There is overwhelming evidence in those first 24 verses that our lives, that this life, that this world and everything in it is in fact, apart from God, irretrievably broken. Say, what do I mean by that? Well, just survey it again with me and and you're going to trust me because I'm not going to read all the verses again, but if you want to follow along as I point them out, uh, let me just show you what I have observed just by simply reading through these first 24 verses, the evidence of broken life that I've found. Number one, there's illness. Verse one, Lazarus was sick. Verse three, as a result of illness, there is concern and there is fear. The sisters send word to Jesus because because they're fearing for their brother's life. You get down to verse 8, and you find both in verse 8, fear, because the disciples are saying, Rabbi, we don't want to go back to Jerusalem. They want to kill you there. And the reason they want to kill you, and this is another evidence in verse 8, is hate. They hate you. They hate what you're doing. They hate what you stand for. They hate what you're preaching. They hate what you're doing to their carefully constructed religious system. You get down to verse 11, The evidence of brokenness is found in confusion. Jesus is saying one thing. The disciples are thinking another. In verse 16, noted this as we were reading through it, in Thomas there is a a spirit of of fatalism, if not outright despair. Well, let's go, because Jesus always knows where he's going and what he's doing, but we know we're going to die when we get there. Despair. Hopelessness. You get to verse 19, when they arrive in Bethany and there's grief. Mary and Martha, and it says, the reason it says that points out they're close to Jerusalem is the idea is that lots and lots and lots of people have come in the ancient Jewish tradition to grieve with them. In verse 20, the evidence of brokenness is isolation. Martha, she goes to see Jesus when he's coming, but Mary, what she do? She stays home. Many of us, when we are grieving, we isolate ourselves. Sign of brokenness. In verse 21, I'm not sure I could be wrong, but I sense in Martha's words a spirit of resentment. Again, evidence of brokenness as well. Lord, if you'd been here, if you'd just shown up, if you'd come when we called for you, my brother would not be dead. And of course, the ultimate evidence of brokenness in this chapter, what everything is pointing to and all the brokenness is flowing from, if you go back up to verse 14, it's death. Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus, our friend, is dead. And the reason I take the time to walk you through all of that and point those evidences of brokenness out to you is because I think you would agree with me when I say, sounds a lot like the world I live in. How about you? How about you? Think of your own life in the last seven days. Since we were last together here on Sunday morning, how many of these things in one way or another, and many more besides, haven't touched your life, have you not encountered? Evidence of brokenness. That it's not that all is not well, it's that nothing is well in the world we live in. How many times in the last seven days have you grappled with feelings? Have you entered into situations? Have you been pulled into or dealing with the chaos of relationships that are broken How many times has it happened merely because you were scrolling through Facebook or listening to the news? There it is, brokenness. There it is, brokenness. There it is, brokenness. There it is, brokenness. It's everywhere. It's all around us. All of it affirms that we are living broken lives in a thoroughly and utterly broken world. And according to the Bible, and I know many of you here know this this morning, but some of you don't, so let's make it clear. 
According to the Bible, the word of God, all of it comes back to one basic reason. As it says in the prophet Isaiah chapter 53 verse 6, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own, his or her own way. God said, follow me. And we said, thanks, I'll try it my way. Because of the sin that we were born with, that we brought into this world simply by showing up, showing up here. The biblical term is sin. And the fact of the matter is that the Bible goes on to say that despite whatever high opinion we have of ourselves, well, yeah, I may be a sinner, but I'm not that. I may be a sinner, but I'm not like her. I've done some bad stuff, but not as bad as him. You know, we can play that game all we want, but in Psalm 14, the Bible indicts us all, and the indictment it gives us concerning our sin is devastating. It says, the Lord has looked down, Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3, the Lord has looked down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand and seek after God. And here's God's assessment, his indictment. They've all turned aside. Together they've all become corrupt. There is no one who does good, say it with me, not even one. And what the Bible goes on to say from there is because that is the case, because that is true, because all have sinned, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God, the Bible warns us, it informs us in Romans 6.23 that the wages of that sin is ultimately the same for all of us. It is death death. Are you glad you came to church this morning? (laughs) This is exactly what you were hoping to hear, right? It's Easter Sunday. Let's talk about death and evil and brokenness and all the rest. Well, the reason we take the time to see that context of this story and, and really truly to find ourselves in it, to realize we are living in the very same world is because we want to be ready for, we want to understand the meaning and the purpose and the power behind what Jesus says next, which is the word picture found at the center of this story. And it is into that context of grief and death and brokenness and despair and fatalism and confusion and everything else we see there that is true in their, was true in their world and is true in ours, it was into that situation that in verses 25 and 26 of John chapter 11, Jesus gave us his final and perhaps his best word picture of all when he said, look at your Bible, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me will live, even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Now, here's the cool thing about that word picture. We get two for the price of one, right? All the other word pictures we've seen, light of the world, bread of life, good shepherd. There's a singular word picture with, with many applications, but there's one thing Jesus is saying. Here there are two. And I want to show you what they are. First of all, we see the evidence of broken life, that this world is broken. It's broken because of sin. We are contributors to the brokenness. We have been, uh, we have been tainted by the brokenness. And it is into this broken, sinful world that Jesus gives this word picture. And the first thing he offers to us in it, that he enters into this world and offers us in this word picture, is a promise of eternal life. The first thing Jesus offers in this word picture is the promise of eternal life. You know, in the entire scope of human history, and understand, I'm going to speak in in kind of a broad generality here, all right, so let's not nitpick, because I think what I'm saying is generally broadly true. 
But in the grand scheme of human history, from the moment God put life on this earth up to this very day, the belief, the notion, the idea that there's no God, the belief, the notion, the idea that there's no afterlife, can I just tell you, that is a minority view. And frankly, an extreme minority view. And actually a relatively recent one in many respects as well. I know it's popular, but it is recent, and it is extreme minority. And the reason I say that is because if you go to the anthropologists, and you go to the scholars, and you go to the historians, and you go to the archaeologists, what do they find every time they go into a culture that is, that is actively happening somewhere, even maybe just some of those few remote tribes that haven't even been made contact with yet, as well as they go all the way back through the history? What do they find? Every culture culture worships something, every single one of them. They all believe there's something bigger out there. They may love it, they may fear it, it may be, it may be weird, it may be strange. But what I'm saying to you again, generally speaking, is that the, the belief in an afterlife, the belief in a God, the belief that there is something bigger out there than us, a higher power, if you will, is pretty much universal. And the reason I take the time to point that out is is because what that means is that, therefore, the question most people wrestle with as they live lives in this broken world is not the question of whether or not there's a God, whether or not there's an afterlife. Some of them do it, but again, minority view. What most people wrestle with instead is what is that afterlife like? What's waiting for me on the other side? How do I get there? Will I get there? And if I do, how can I ensure, what can I do now to ensure that when I get there, it's as good as it can possibly be, right? That's the game everybody's playing. That's the battle or the journey everybody's on. By that I mean, which hoops should I jump through? Which ladder do I climb? What rules do I keep? What bills do I pay? What sacrifices do I make? Or to paraphrase Jesus in verse 25, look at your Bible, to put Jesus' words another way, the question most people are asking is, how can I live even though I'm going to die? right? How can I live even though I know I'm going to die? And Jesus' response is in this word picture. And his response to that question, his response to that dilemma is that the answer to the question, listen to me, is a person, not a plan. The answer to that question is a person, not a plan. In fact, what Jesus says is that he himself is, in fact, the answer. Look at your Bible. Jesus said to her, Martha says, I know, I know Lazarus is going to rise again on the last day. She says, no, oh, I've got something more in store for you than that, Martha. Because I am this day the resurrection. And he who believes in me will live even though he dies. Jesus is saying, I'm resurrection personified. I am not the means. I am not the conduit. I am not the plan, the steps you follow. I'm the guy. I'm the, as we saw, and the truth and the life. And if you want to go to the Father, you come through me. I am, Jesus said, the promise of eternal life. The promise of eternal life. But as I said a moment ago, and I want you to note, that's not all Jesus said in this word picture. This is, again, a, a two for two for the price of one. Because on one hand, what Jesus says is he 
enters into and speaks into and responds to our brokenness. On one hand, he gives in this word picture, verse 25, a promise of eternal life, but then he immediately, in the same sentence, and in fact, even in the same breath, follows that up, and this may be the one that for many of us is the one we really need to grapple with here this morning because we've already received the gift or the promise of eternal life. What Jesus does next in the rest of this word picture is he extends to us an offer of abundant life. He said, I'm going to give you the promise of eternal life, but I'm also going to offer you an invitation to abundant life. What do I mean? Well, look again at these two verses. Verses 25 and 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection. That's the promise of eternal life. And Martha, I am also the life. And if you go to verse 26, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. In other words, and among other things Jesus is saying in that verse is this, is he is saying to Martha and through that statement to us that the benefits and the blessings and the joys and all that is involved, all that is good with making me your savior, with responding to and receiving my promise of eternal life. He's saying, Martha, here's what I want you to understand. All of that stuff doesn't just begin once you check out of planet earth. It isn't just about what you get when you die because you put your faith in me. Now, Martha, what I want you to understand is that abundant life in Jesus Christ, you know when it starts? Right? What? Now. Abundant life. Not easy life. But abundant life in me starts now an entirely new and an entirely better way of living than you could ever have constructed for yourself. Now, we don't believe that, generally speaking. We don't. And the reason we don't is because somewhere along the way, somebody told us or we convinced ourselves that the abundant life is equivalent to the American dream, right? Now listen, I'm not down on the American dream. I'd rather live here than anywhere else, all right? I'm happy with my homeland, okay? But can we just understand this morning that the American dream is not what Jesus was talking about when he talked about the abundant life. And you know why I know that? Because I checked, all right? I went to the books. I went to the original language, and I looked up the word that John used here that Jesus spoke when he said, I'm the resurrection, and I am the life, okay? And I went to the root of the Greek term, and I dug around in the dictionaries, and I found no evidence whatsoever that when Jesus said, I am the life, and he who lives will live in me and for me and never die, I found no evidence of anything referring to big houses, new cars, white teeth, tight abs, or climate-controlled storage units that are filled with a whole bunch of stuff somebody else is going to throw away when we die. None of that is found. None, everything, none of it. None of it is found in John chapter 11. None of it is found in Jesus' declaration. I am the life. It's not there. But what I did find when I looked it up, and maybe the reason it's harder for us to grasp and understand is because it isn't something we can put our hands on necessarily. It isn't something I can put in a box and offer to you and show you and say this is abundant life. But here's what the word really means. It means life Real and genuine, active and vigorous, because it's devoted to God, even in this world, for those who put their trust 
in Jesus Christ. He's not talking about stuff we can hold in our hands. He's talking about stuff that he does in our heart. He's talking about the things that many of us have been praying and praising Jesus for all week long. Lord Jesus, because I know you, I have. Lord Jesus, because I know you, you have given. Lord Jesus, because you saved me, I am not any longer the person I used to be. He's talking about, and if all those other, all that other material stuff comes with it, so much the better, but it's going away, but this isn't. This isn't. It's right. And so even though I saw, I really did, I saw this picture on the internet last week, maybe you saw it too. Why do we laugh? Because we know it's not true. Because we know that's not the way it works. That is how we live, even as believers in Jesus Christ. That it is about getting as much as I can, as fast as I can, and holding on to it as long as I can, and somehow think that maybe that's abundant life. But we know it's not true. And Jesus says so, that living for the stuff of this world is futile. And he really, I believe, could not have said it any clearer than he did in this word picture. Again, one more time, I am the resurrection and I am the life. Whoever believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And then he asked a question, and don't miss it in your Bible, and if you've never underlined it before, today would be a good day to do so. He asked this question, do you believe this? Do you believe this? And then before he stood around waiting for an answer, you know what he did next? What the rest of the story this morning in John chapter 11 tells us is that he went out and backed it up. Jesus went out and proved that what he was saying was true, that what he was announcing, what he was saying about himself was in fact what he had come to accomplish. And so what I want you to do in the remainder of our time together is just listen to the rest of the story I'm about to read. Grab your Bible, follow along. Jesus gives the word picture. He asks the question. And then as we are processing the question, again, about the offer of eternal life or the promise of eternal life and the offer of abundant life, Jesus says, let me just show you a little something. That's sort of what he says anyway. It's not really in the text, but that's what he's saying. Let me show you a little something to reveal to you what I mean through which, and this is the final thing if you're just taking notes and following along this morning, the rest of this story culminates in an invitation to new life. And here's how it went down. In John 11, beginning in verse 27, I'm going to go all the way to verse 46. So once again, grab your Bible and follow along. Jesus asked the question, do you believe this? She, Martha, said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. And yes, that's the main thing, but what Jesus is revealing to her is that's not the only thing. And then when she had said this, she went away and called Mary her sister, saying secretly, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she, Mary, got up quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus, excuse me, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her, remember those who'd come from Jerusalem to mourn with her, in the house and consoling her, when they saw Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he, Jesus, was deeply moved in spirit. He was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him, Lazarus, who had died? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. 
So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind have also kept this man from dying? And so Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around it, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And the man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth, and Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. And therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. And with that, what what did Jesus do? Well, he just proved the word picture, right? He just proved the reality and the truth and the power of what he had said when he said to Martha, I'm the resurrection and the life, and whoever believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And in doing so, here's the reason I take the time to walk you through this very long and in some respects complicated story. The reason we take the time to do it is because in doing so, he is proving that he's worthy of your faith too and that he is worthy of mine as well. Because in short, again, just sort of in summary, bullet point fashion, take a look with me in these last 20 verses at what happened. The first thing Jesus did, and I want you to think, okay, this is not filler, follow along, all right? Here's what happened. Here's what Jesus did after making his statement and then going to Lazarus' tomb. The first thing Jesus did, you know what he did? He confronted the problem. There was a problem, and Jesus confronted it. He said in verse 34, where have you laid him? I'm not afraid of it. I want to go where the problem is. And you know what Jesus did? This may be the most poignant and meaningful part of the story. He entered into their pain. Jesus confronted the problem, but then he entered into their pain. In verse 33, it says, when he saw her weeping and the Jews weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit. That literally means he gave out an involuntary gasp. Have you ever walked into a room where people are grieving an immediate tragedy and you just, that thing wells up in you? That's what Jesus did. And he was deeply moved. It's it's grief mixed with anger at what sin had just done. Verse 35, we know that one as well. Jesus wept, that silent weeping. He's entering into the pain of his people. But then you know what Jesus did? He confronted the problem. He entered the pain. And then in verse 39, he eliminated the obstacle. He said to them, roll the stone away. Move it because it's standing in front of what I'm about to do. Just roll it away. Remove the stone. And then what did he do in verses 43 and 44? Then Jesus raised the dead. He said these things, and he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And it has been said for years, but I'll say it again. If he had not said Lazarus first, everybody would have come forth. Because he's Jesus. He raised the dead. And then in verses 45 and 46... Everybody who saw it had to make up their mind, and they did. Some to believe, some to reject. 
listen to me, the reason we're here this Easter Sunday morning today is because a week or so later, what Jesus did for Lazarus, he went to Calvary and did for us all, right? He went to the cross and did for us all. He confronted our problem. He entered into our pain. Isaiah says our griefs and our sorrows and our transgressions he bore to the cross. He eliminated the obstacle. What is the ultimate obstacle? The ultimate enemy is death. He crushed death by dying in our place. And then three days later, hallelujah, he rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. And because, listen to me, I'm almost done. Because the tomb is still empty, now you and I must decide. Will we receive the offer of eternal life? And will we embrace the promise of abundant life in Jesus Christ? Because Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and I'm the life. And he who believes in me will never die. And the one who lives, uh, he who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And the question he asked Martha is the question I ask you. Do you believe this? Today, some of you need to trust Jesus Christ as Savior. Today, some of the rest of us, we need to, because we've already done that, be reminded of the life he wants us to be living for him, and he invites us and enables us to live even now when we walk with him and make him our first priority. So here's the question, and you don't have to tell me, you've got to tell him, do you believe it? Do you believe it? There is no better day to make up your mind than this one. You know, many years ago, a pastor by the name of Joe Lemusio wrote something about Easter Sunday that really takes all of our talk about word pictures and illustrations, and, and I love this because he brings it down to a matter of simple punctuation, and I promise I'm going to finish with this two minutes and we're done. He brings it all down to a matter of simple punctuation when he wrote the following, and as he wrote this many years ago to his congregation, I offer it to you in closing this morning He says, quote, if I asked you to describe Easter using only punctuation marks, which punctuation mark would you choose to describe this Easter morning for yourself? Then he explains. He says, maybe this morning, Easter is a comma for you. It makes you stop, pause, think, and listen, but that's about it. And then you move on. Maybe, he says, today is a downer. Easter for you is a big, bold period. You thought you'd feel excited. You thought you'd be thrilled, but instead it seems today more like an empty ritual. You feel like you are on the outside looking in. He says the first Easter was a day like day when life felt like that for Jesus' disciples. He was dead. He was buried. An end to expectations, a period. But then news of an empty tomb and the period became a question mark. That's worse than a period because now they're wondering, where is he? The guards are gone. The stones rolled away. He is not there. And if he isn't there, then where? And then an angel speaks. Why do you seek the living one, what, among the? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he spoke to you saying that the Son of Man must be delivered in the hands of sinful men, how he must be crucified and the third day rise again. Of course they remembered. Now the periods are gone, the question marks removed, and there is instead one massive exclamation point. And that is what Easter is all about, an exclamation of gratitude and praise for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. An exclamation of gratitude and praise to the one who said, I am the resurrection and I 
am the life. And that is why the big idea this Easter Sunday morning. That's why the big idea this Easter Sunday morning is an invitation, it is an exhortation, it is a plea to start living the life Jesus rose to give you. Start living the life Jesus Christ rose to give you. Eternal life, abundant life, everlasting life. Believe in him, trust in him, walk with him, rejoice in him, and expectantly live for him till the day you see him face to face because he, praise God, truly is the resurrection and the life. Father, we thank you this morning for the story of Easter. And we thank you that it's not just a story in a book, that it's not just a a story that we tell, but it is a living story. It is an active story. It is a story the effects of which still resonate as loudly today as they did that first Easter Sunday morning. Father, I don't know. You, only you know the, the condition of each of our hearts that we came in. You know those of us for whom today is a comma that we're just passing through, putting in our Easter Sunday morning duty. You know, for those of us uh, here this morning, for whom Easter is a period where life feels like it's ground to a halt, things are confusing and we're not sure what's going on. And you know those of us for whom today is a question mark. Who is this Jesus? Why should I pay attention to him? What is he doing in my life and what does he want from me? And Father, you know those of us here this morning, praise God, for whom today is an exclamation point of victory and triumph and joy. Father, I pray as we close this morning that you would take the commas and the periods and the question marks and turn them all into exclamation points. That you would bring all of us face to face and heart to heart with the one who said, I am the resurrection and I am the life and I came to do all these things for you. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you. We praise you for this day. May we go from here in great joy and gratitude because of all that you have done for us. In your triumphant name we pray.